Please turn to the book of Jude. You can go to the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation, one book before that, the book of Jude. We're going to be looking at verses 24 and 25. We, we are finishing up this book. I pray that it has done in your life what it has done in my life. Now, I feel like because it's the first Sunday of the new year, we got to talk about New Year's resolutions, right? Now, maybe you're one of those weird people who makes them. I'm not one of them, okay? Maybe it's because I'm like a discouraged perfectionist or something. But, but we all know what those are, right? Some of you make them. Some of you avoid them. But, but with that said, today, I want to put one before you for you to consider. It's a biblical one, but it's something to think through that maybe this year, this would be a New Year's resolution to make. And it's simply this, that in 2021, with everything going on in the world, to contemplate heaven more often. Would you consider in 2021 being more heavenly minded? Now that might be weird, That might sound strange to you, but not in church history. Uh, The Puritans talked a lot about this. Um, For for instance, one Puritan said that the the chief job description, or at least one of the chief job descriptions of the pastor, is to prepare his people for death and the heaven that awaits them. Thomas Goodwin wrote that it was the job... Uh, it was his job to keep his people's hearts raised up to heaven. Or perhaps my favorite, Richard Baxter, he said that, that it was his job to exhort his church to, and this is good, this is pure good. I wish I could write like this. I wish I could come up with this. He, he said that it was his job to consistently bathe his people's souls with heaven's delight. Isn't that good? To bathe thy soul in heaven's delights. Well, perhaps no Puritan talked more about this sort of heaven-minded, heavenly-mindedness than John Bunyan in his book, Pilgrim's Progress. I know I talk about this a lot. I'm sorry. It just is what it is. It's too good. It was like low-hanging fruit. I have to talk about it. Well, John Bunyan writes a book called Pilgrim's Progress, and and it's a story of a pilgrim named Christian who leaves the city of destruction for the celestial city. Now, the celestial city is heaven. It's it's New Jerusalem, or as Bunyan's favorite term, and, and many in his time, he called it Emmanuel's land. And pilgrim, like all pilgrims, have many problems, many trials, but like all pilgrims, like all of us, eventually we all reach the river of death. That was the metaphor he used. You can't bypass that. And so in the story, there's an angelic guide, and he explains that you can't bypass the river of death. All must pass through its waters. And yet it's this final trial that proves almost an undoing for the pilgrim. He begins to be fearful. He begins to wonder, did I have enough faith? Did I make it? Is Jesus going to be with me even at this hour? And darkness closes in on him. And it's at that moment 
that by God's grace, he has a companion named Hopeful. And his companion speaks comfort into his life. Now, I'm going to save what Hopeful says him for the end. But, but before I tell you what Hopeful says, I wonder, what, what do you say in the hour, when, when the sort of hour of darkness comes, when trials and suffering come, how do you preach? How do you, how do you extend comfort into someone's life? How do you do it in your own soul? We're all pilgrims, aren't we? We're all travelers. We're all sojourners. That's what a church is. Pilgrims who have fled the city of destruction for a journey to the celestial city. We all want to go to Emmanuel's land. The question is, as we journey to Emmanuel's land, are we going to persevere? Now, these last few months, we've been looking at the book of Jude. We're going to finish the book of Jude this morning. And I think it's wonderful and perhaps the best New Year's resolution that we can even talk about, which is we're going to talk a lot about heaven. Um, and, you, and you can pray, you can pray for me. Um, I, I've had a, a weird week, and yesterday I was at a funeral. So you can pray for me because this is going to be a little raw for me as we talk about heaven. But, but we've been going through the book of Jude, and, and the book of Jude is a small book, right? Phil read it, and I didn't time him, but I'm guessing in like three minutes. But it packs a punch, doesn't it? Jude, who is the half-brother of Jesus, he writes this book to encourage Christians to contend for the faith. But, but, but more than saying, I want you to contend for the faith in the midst of all these false teachers, in multiple times, Jude encourages these Christians by saying that they are kept, that God's going to keep them. We saw that in verse 1 when Jude says that they, these Christians are kept for Jesus. And now at the close of it, like bookends, he says, this is what it's going to look like. This is what it looks like to be kept for Jesus. And spoiler alert, if you want to know what it looks like to be kept for Jesus, well, verses 24 and 25 tell us, and it looks like glory. Verse 24 and 25, it's a doxology. Now, uh, as you're reading some of the New Testament letters, many of them end in a benediction, which is a blessing. Well, this is a doxology. It's a praise to God, which is, I think, a really fitting and a perfect way to end this letter, which I think is more like a sermon than it is like a letter. And hidden in this doxology, this praise to God is hidden a glimpse of heaven. So the big idea, which is, should be behind me, is simply this. That you are Christian. You are kept for glory and because of glory with great joy. You are kept for glory and because of glory with great joy. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, back in verse 24, Jude writes that, that God is able. And then he introduces two parallel actions of God. One of them is negative and the other of them is positive. Let's just look at them. He first says that God is able to keep you from falling, from stumbling. That's the negative. And then he says God is able to present you blameless before the presence of his glory 
positive. Now, Jude is written exclusively about teachers, right? Teachers in his day and in the Old Testament who were seducing people, right? Leading people astray. And I only assume that when Jude gets to the end, he's, he's assuming that these Christians might be even be a little discouraged, wondering, well, if all these people are kept for destruction, if all of them are, are, are kept away from God because of their false teaching and, and what they're doing, the destruction that, that they're accomplishing in this church, I mean, is everyone going to be swept away in judgment? Who's strong enough to endure? I mean, half the book is judgment. And so here we're reminded that God keeps us from stumbling. God is our protector. God not only guides our steps, God guards our steps. He's able to keep you from stumbling. You've all stumbled, right? You all have that picture in your mind, that embarrassing picture. Well, it's also a metaphor for stumbling over sin and those sorts of things. And in the context of this letter, people were stumbling over false teachers and being seduced into leaving Jesus altogether. And he's saying, God is able to keep you from stumbling. It's the idea of protection. It's the idea of perseverance. It's an idea that God in his grace and in his love and in his power is able to present you before his glory without stumbling on that day. God has that much power at his disposal. And then second, it says that God's able to present us before his presence in glory. In his glory. His glorious presence. Now, this is, this is the sort of final judgment scene. Where God's glory, his splendor, his majesty, his authority is on full display. In all of its awful purity. The Old Testament prophet Malachi pictured this day. And he talked about this day. And he pictured this as a heavenly courtroom. And he asks a question. He says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? That's Malachi's prophetic question. And it's not a rhetorical question. It's a question we must all answer. How can anyone stand in God's presence? Who's able to stand? And the answer is none. None of us can stand in God's presence. We're unable to. The Bible is actually really quite clear about this. If you just think about even how worship worked in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, people would bring sacrifices to the temple. And they had to be blameless. Without defilement. Without blemish. Those were the offerings that were worthy to be offered to God. Without defect. Actually, Israel itself as a nation was called to be faultless. David would write that, he would write in a psalm, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Right, another question, who can dwell in your presence? Who can stand in your presence? Who can live on your holy hill? And then he answers his own question and says, He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous. 
Only the blameless, only the righteous can stand in God's presence. That is, who can stand in God's presence? Well, therein lies the tension, the problem, the sort of drama of the narrative. We're called to be blameless, but we're not. We're called to be righteous, but we're not. And only those who are blameless and righteous can stand before God's presence. So how do you reconcile those two truths? Now, if you're not a Christian today, I would just say this is the problem of our story. God in all of his glory, God in all of his beauty, God in all of his power and might and holiness, and us and all of our lack of that. Those are the two unreconcilable things. How how, how do you square your life with God's life? On that day when you meet God, how can you stand before his his power, his, his presence? Well, the Christian gospel gives us the answer to that, and actually Jude does as well in verse 25, that there is a way to reconcile these two truths. Down in verse 25, we read this, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how it's possible. That's the answer. Now, n- notice the language, and this is very interesting. Verse 25, it says, God, God is called the Savior. Right? I-, I think so often we think of Jesus as the Savior, but here it says God is the Savior. God saves by sending his Son. The Son saves by dying for sinners, and then, and though it's not referenced, but it is uh, in other places in the New Testament, the, the Spirit saves too by applying that death to people's lives. All three persons of the Trinity save. So how is it that we can stand? Well, God sent his Son. Though we are, have, uh, we are defiled by sin, Jesus was perfectly undefiled. He was blameless, immaculate, without blemish, pure. And he died as our substitute. In the Testament, uh, Peter himself writes that he was a lamb without blemish or defect. The gospel in Jude is simply this, that the, defile, the undefiled one became defiled that we might become undefiled. That's how we can stand in his presence, the presence of glory without blemish. It's not because we're sinless. It's because when we stand on that day, when God sees us, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees Jesus and his perfection. That's how God can see us. That's how we can stand. That's how we are without blemish. It's because His righteousness, the Son's righteousness, is credited to us. That is our only hope of glory. Now, what does this mean for us this morning? Well, it it, it means if you're not a Christian, that your only hope is not looking inside or comparison or trying better. Our only hope is to trust in Jesus Christ. And for the Christian, well, basically this means we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be scared. Not even of death. 
Death itself has been conquered by Jesus. The poet George Herbert once wrote this. He said that that death used to be an executioner. But because of the gospel, death is now just a gardener. Death used to be able to crush us, but now all death can do is plant us in God's soil as we become something extraordinary. All of us were meant to be in God's glorious presence. We see that in Genesis 1 when when Adam is walking with God. We are meant to be in God's glory, to be in his presence. We are kept for that reality. Now, not only are we kept for glory, God keeps us because of his glory. That's verse 25. Let me read it. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. The Lord who saves gets the praise. Right? These four words, these, these, these four words are attributed to God, right? Glory, majesty, power, authority. And all of them relate to God's greatness. Especially uh, as it relates to God's salvific acts. So that first word, glory, it, it relates to God's splendor. He is like the radiance of light. God is more beautiful than anything or anyone. Right? You, you love that, that, that scene when, when you go to a wedding and you see, uh, you just kind of stare at the groom as he sees his bride for that first time, right? And you just see like, oh my gosh, right? Just the beauty. And she is the most beautiful thing that he has laid his eyes on, except for one reality. God's own glory is infinitely greater and more beautiful. Then the word majesty, which relates to that that God is worthy. God is honored above all. He is king. He is transcendent. He is above all. He is majestic. Then the word power, which relates to God's control over the world. All this world. There isn't an inch, an atom, in which God does not say, mine. This is God's world. And then lastly, authority, which has to do with God's sovereign reign. He is the sovereign king. God has power. Right? He has power over the waves. He has power over the foggy haze. He has power over kings. He has power over angelic wings. He knows every hair on your head and every word that you've said. He has power to save. He has power to raise you from the grave. He has glory and power and majesty now and forevermore. And and, and notice that last, that last tag, right? It says that God has glory, majesty, power, authority, And they've always belonged to God, right? In the past, in the present, and in the future. Before all time, past, now, present, and forevermore, future. God has always been these things. He has always been glorious and mighty and powerful. The Lord who saves gets the praise. 
Because of who God is and what God has done, he gets praise for all eternity. Realize this, the God saves, he saves sinners, and he doesn't save sinners for us. I mean, that's a byproduct, that's a good thing. But actually, when he saves sinners, when he saves men and women for himself, he does so for the purpose of accumulating more glory for himself. The end of salvation is not us, it's not the sinner, it's God himself who receives glory. And so just think about this little church or these Christians back in Jude's day. You, you want assurance? Assurance that you'll be able to stand without blemish? Well, God has sort of attached his own glory to people's salvations. God has wrapped up his glory in redeeming sinners for himself. Talk about confidence. God's own glory is at stake. God receives Glory as he redeems sinners. So we are saved to be in God's glorious presence so that God himself will receive maximum glory. God receives glory by saving sinners. The end of salvation is not the sinner. It's God himself. You know, the book of Jude talks a lot about false teachers. And if you look at any false teacher... Right? One thing that pretty much all of them peddle is a sort of gospel of narcissism. Right? That it's all about you. It's all about you having your best life now. The, the locus of your salvation is me, my happiness. It's all about me. You know, God was sitting in heaven going, I need someone else on my team. Oh, yes, Stephen. Oh, thank goodness. All right, now I got him. Now my collection is more complete. No, that is not how this works. The Bible has a different gospel. The end, the, 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 the locus of the story is God himself. Actually, come back tonight as Aaron teaches on Genesis 1. And if you just read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you, you get the, the major theme of the Bible. In the beginning, God. There, you've got the major character, and it's not any of us. In the beginning, God. God is the major character in the biblical story, in all of our lives. And our job, it's in some sense singular. In pandemics and in peace, in good times and bad times, when the stock market's going great and when it's not, when your house soars in price or when it plummets, in sickness and health, our job is sort of singular, which is whatever the season, whatever's going on to our lives, it is to praise God, to give him glory, to say, as Jude said, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. That is our role. God is at the center of the story. Our job, you can think of this, God is like the sun, we are planets. We revolve around God, and as we do so, our job is to give him glory, to, be, to enjoy him, to relish him, to, to, to shine a light on how great and wonderful and glorious he is. The God who saves gets the praise. We were kept for glory, And we were kept because of glory. 
because of his glory. Which is no wonder Jude points to then this great byproduct that I skipped right in the middle, right? The, the, the sort of oriel middle, right in the middle of these two verses that I skipped. I don't know if you noticed I skipped. Two words, verse 24, the end there. We were kept for glory because of glory, and it produces something truly wonderful. Joy. Great, great, great joy. I think heaven gets a a bad rap. I I think heaven needs to get a a new PR person. I I think it's partly Hallmark's fault, right? I, I think we think of heaven like a precious moments figurine, right? We're just going to be, you know, strumming a harp in heaven on clouds and for anything like me, I'm like, I don't want any part in that. That sounds horrible. <laughs> or, or maybe it's Hollywood, right? I don't know if you've noticed, but there just seems like this steady stream of these stories and, and even a movie uh, about these, you know, death stories where someone dies and they go to heaven and then they come back and tell you about it. And, and you read it and you're like, that doesn't even sound very good. Or, or, or maybe it's that... Maybe we need to stop thinking of heaven. Maybe that's our problem, right? I think there's almost a, a growing criticism for being heavenly-minded. Now, it happened a long time ago. More than 100 years ago, an activist, Joe Hill, some of you might know that name, Joe Hill thought that America, and Christians in particular, were way too heavenly-minded. And so in defense of his belief, he penned these words. Okay, you might not know him, but you know these words, so... He penned this poem, these words. Long-haired preachers come out every night. Don't worry, I've got short hair, so he can't be talking about me. Long-haired preachers come out every night, try to tell you what's wrong and what's right, but when asked about something to eat, they will ask, they will answer in voices so sweet, you will eat by and by in that glorious land above the sky, work and pray, live on hay, you'll get pie in the sky, when you die. Pie in the sky, that's where this comes from. Some say that we need more deeds, less creeds. That Christians need to stop thinking about their pie in the sky. Start making some pie here on earth. Now, I think there could be a criticism there that we need to hear. And yet, this is just sort of a side. If you look at Christian history... I don't think you can square that reality with actual Christian history. Those who have longed for their pie in the sky, those who have been most heavenly minded, have been those who have done most earthly good. I I, I dare you, think of any organization right now in our community. People working uh, during tsunamis and earthquakes and fighting poverty and, and, and hospitals, fighting cancer, human trafficking. You go down the list. And you will find Christians giving their time, money, energy, and expertise towards those end. Those who have thought most of heaven have brought heaven down in one sense. But nevertheless, I think heaven gets a bad rap. Maybe it's the hallmark. Maybe it's Hollywood. Maybe it's we're just not supposed to think about it because then we would just focus too much on the pie in the sky. But whatever the reason is, Jude tells us it's going to be amazing 
and it's going to produce joy. Joy in great abundance. Now why? Is it it just because there are going to be no tears? Well, that's part of it, but that's not all of it. Is it because there's going to be no more sin? Well, that's part of it, but not all of it. Is it going to be because we're going to see loved ones that have gone before us? Well, that's part of it. That's not all of it. Actually, what, what makes heaven heaven? What makes heaven so glorious? What makes heaven so good? What makes heaven so sweet and so wonderful is who's in heaven. Heaven is not heaven without Jesus Christ. He is what makes heaven so sweet. Richard Sieves, another Puritan, wrote these words, Heaven is not heaven without Christ. I say that the joys of heaven are not the joys of heaven without Christ. He is the very heaven of heaven. Heaven is the place where we will be overwhelmed by many things, but front and center, we will be overwhelmed with Jesus Christ. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe as you're at church or you're by yourself, you're on a walk, you're having a conversation, something happens and you're just overwhelmed by Christ's love for you. That It's almost as if you could feel him, you could touch him, and you're just overwhelmed by it. Well, it's that and infinitely more. We'll be able to see him face to face, hear him as you hear me. Christ is the joy of heaven. At the conclusion of the second book of Pilgrim's Progress, there's, there's two books. Christian goes and then his wife goes. That's the second book. Well, at the conclusion of the second book, another pilgrim whose name is Mr. Steadfast. That's what my nickname should be. That's what I want to be, Mr. Steadfast. We should all want that. Well, he proclaims this right as he's about to cross the river of death. He says, I see myself now at the end of my journey. My toilsome days are ended. I am now, I am going now to see the head that was crowned with thorns and that face that was spit upon for me. The the joy that he was longing for was the joy of seeing Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate joy. Lisa and I were reflecting on this just yesterday. As as some of you know, some dear friends of ours just lost their nine-year-old boy to cancer. Um, now, this is the gut-wrenching part of this sermon, so you're going to have to stay with me. And we were driving, um, and we were just reflecting on the service, and it was interesting because both of us were, were doing the, the ugly crying at, at portions of the service. And Lisa said something very perceptive. She said, it's interesting that, that the moments that were so gut-wrenching were the moments in which we talked about Jesus. I think, and I thought about it and I thought, oh my gosh, that's exactly right. The, the little boy whose name was Josiah, his grandmother came up and eulogized his life. And she talked about his life, the things he liked, those sorts of things. But, but throughout it, she didn't just talk about the boy, she talked about the boy's savior. Sprinkled all throughout that eulogy, was Jesus Christ. And she got to the end and she 
said one of the great promises for her was that in life and in death, God was always with Josiah. She ended with basically saying that the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The moments that were most gut-wrenching were the moments in which we talked about Jesus. Even the ending. At the close, we sang a song. I, I didn't know this at the time, but it was actually Josiah's favorite song. We sang, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And we sang about Jesus' faithfulness, even in cancer. And we sang, and we sang, and we praised God, even in our lament, even in our tears. We sang, and we gave glory to God, because he was faithful in it all. There is no greater joy that can be found than Jesus Christ. He is the jewel of heaven. He is the greatest reward. There are great rewards. They pale in comparison to Jesus Christ himself. Christian, you were you kept for him. Kept for glory. To be in his presence. That is how Jude wants us That's how he wants to end his letter. A a reminder that whatever happens, you're kept for glory. Kept to be in his glorious presence without blemish. Nothing can separate us from that love. Well, at the beginning I told you I, I would tell you what Hopeful said to Christian as he was sinking, as he was dying. In the river of death. As he was, as death was closing in on him, as he was nearly undone, as fear was gripping his heart, his companion hopeful comforted him. And he did so by giving him Jesus. Hopeful whispered to his friend and said, Be of good cheer. Jesus Christ makes you whole. At which point, the pilgrim, his soul was restored, and he cried out, I see him. Oh, I see him. You are kept for glory because of God's glory. And there is great joy now and infinitely more in the world to come. God will keep you until that day. He keeps all pilgrims like he did Christian as we travel home to Emmanuel's land. If you ever have the opportunity to be with someone as they cross that river of death, just whisper, sing, read about Jesus. That's all I want. And if I squeeze your hand or if they squeeze your hand, know that it's because they're getting close to Emmanuel's land who will welcome him with joy and all will be well, not just because pain will be gone, but because they'll be with Jesus face to face. That was the great gift that Jesus said to the robber next to him, right? That the, 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 the person on the cross next to him, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. 
That was the great gift. Paradise with Jesus. Let's pray. God, we, um, we are reminded this day that, that even in our grumbling, even in our frustrations, even in our self-centeredness, Lord, we, we want to acknowledge that all glory and majesty and dominion and authority belong to you for all time, now and forevermore. Lord, we thank you for the great gift of salvation we have in Jesus Christ. May we live in light of that. May we be so heavenly mindful. May we be so longing for your son and his return that we live our lives in such a way that would do damage to the kingdom of darkness. We are grateful for, for the, the opportunity to gather, to, to celebrate, and to, and to worship you, Lord. So many places, you can't do that. We, we are grateful for this opportunity, and we pray, Lord, that we would, we would live lives in light of eternity. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, the, the book of Jude reminds us that, that we are entrusted with the gospel, right? Entrusted with the gospel against false teachers to guard it, to protect it. Well, one way we do that is through communion. Communion is an ordinance of the church. Essentially, it is a visible sign of the gospel itself. It's a sort of foretaste of that heavenly banquet that will come. Communion is an act of obedience where the gathering of the church remembers what Christ has done, what Christ has called us to be as we await our hope of his return. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us to examine our lives before we take communion. Now, that means many things, but I'll point out one thing. What that means most fundamentally is that communion is for only those who have come to an end of themselves, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which is normally uh, exhibited through baptism. That's who communion is for. Even if you're not a member of this church, if that describes you, we welcome you to participate with us. But if for any reason that might not describe you, we just ask as we take it, just, just silently reflect on the gospel that was preached here this morning. Now, the, the ushers normally pass out communion. I hope you got some. If not, there will be some, I believe, in the back. But we're going to sing a song. We're going to sing and, and praise God. And as we do, let's just reflect on the, the nature, the work of Jesus Christ. And then afterwards, as a sign of our unity in Christ, we're going to take communion together. And I'll come back up here again. <laughs>